Our text for today is from our gospel reading from Mark chapter 1. In Mark chapter 8, there is a wonderful account of Jesus walking along the road, along the way with his disciples, preaching and teaching as they walked, and he suddenly stops. He turns to them and he asks them a very important question. He asks them, who do the people say that I am? And they say, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist, and other people say that you're the prophet Elijah or one of the other prophets of old. And then Jesus turns to them and he looks them right in the eyes. And he asks them the most important question of all. He says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who do you believe Jesus Christ to be? There is no higher pursuit. There is no greater knowledge. There's nothing greater that we can seek in our life than to know Jesus Christ intellectually but deeply spiritually. Who do you believe Jesus Christ to be? Well, this is what Mark is showing us in the opening chapters of his gospel. And here in chapter 1, over and over and over again, he is showing us the power of Christ and the divine authority of Christ, the divinity of Christ. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the entire gospel begins with this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, telling us right from the beginning who Jesus is as the Son of God. This account that we saw a few weeks ago with John the Baptist, John the Baptist who was the most powerful prophet in 400 years of their history and yet even John the Baptist when speaking of Christ says this, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And then the baptism of Jesus, as Jesus comes out of the water, it doesn't just say that the heavens parted and opened very serenely. No, it says that the heavens were torn open and that there was a voice from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. And then the temptations of Christ, 40 days in the wilderness battling Satan face to face, wild animals that were around him. And then, as we saw last week, Jesus calls his disciples. And there was something about him that says that they immediately left their nets and they followed him. And that brings us to our text for today. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. Jesus is in a synagogue and he's preaching and his teaching. And in this text of Scripture, we see two things of who Jesus is. Two things that we learn about Jesus. First of all, we learn that his presence is at times unbearable. And secondly, we learn that his plan is always unstoppable. His presence, 
his very being at times unbearable and his plan always unstoppable. Let's dig into this text, into God's word. Let's learn more about Jesus today. First of all, that his presence is at times unbearable. There's a disturbance, there's a great distress and uneasiness. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's look at the text, verse 21. It says, they, Jesus and his disciples, went into Capernaum. Immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And then verse 27, after he casts out this unclean spirit, it says they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves. The Greek there is a little bit more like they argued amongst themselves. They were so disturbed, you see. And they were saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. And there's that word again. The presence of Christ and his teaching them, teaching with authority. First of all, it says they were astonished. Secondly, it says they were amazed. The Greek here for amazed It's not like, you know, they were amazed, like, wow, that's really cool. Whoa, man, this Jesus is awesome. Isn't this amazing? It's not like that. The nuance here is that there is a dread. There is a fear. There is a disturbance, a distress, an uneasiness in his presence. It's as though it's unbearable to be in the presence of Christ. Why? Because he's teaching them as one who had, quote, authority. Now, what is this word authority? The Greek here for authority is a, it's an amazing word. The Greek is exousia. Exousia, which means literally ex out of usia, the substance. Some of you might be familiar with the Nicene Creed. We know about the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, where we say that Jesus Christ was one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. One substance is homo usia, homo one. Usia substance. This is ex usia, out of, from the substance. What's the substance? Well, it's the substance. It's the essence. It's the foundation. It's the thing that is behind all things. The thing from which all things flow. There is something in the teaching and the presence of Christ that is conveying to them He is the uncaused, first cause of all things. That he is the one who holds all things together by a word of his command. They were sensing this from Christ. He had authority. What's the root word of authority? It's author. He is the originator. He is the author of life itself. The author of creation. They are in his presence and they're saying to themselves, I don't like this. This is making me uncomfortable. 
it's unbearable. We see this in other places in the scripture and in the places I go to, Revelation chapter one, we see the apostle John. John as the disciple, he is referred to as the quote, beloved disciple of Christ. He probably had a closer relationship with Jesus than anyone else on earth aside from maybe his mother Mary. But here is John and he's on an island called Patmos and he's imprisoned and he gets a revelation, a vision of Christ. Christ comes to him and this is how John describes what he sees. He says his eyes were like flames of fire and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Not half strength or three-fourths strength. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. His eyes were like flames of fire. Is that how you typically picture Christ on an average Monday? That painting of Christ you've seen or maybe have hanging in your house, is it the eyes that are blazing with fire? And what is John's reaction when he's in the presence of the unrestrained, unmitigated presence of Christ? He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. And this is the same Jesus Christ who says, let the little children come to me. Would you hand over your child to a man whose eyes were flames of fire? This is the same Jesus who walked into the bedroom of a 12-year-old girl who had just passed away, and he took her gently by the hand, and he said to her, little girl, it's time to wake up. This is the same Jesus Christ who was on his hands and knees washing the feet of his friends. You know I love C.S. Lewis. You know I love the Chronicles of Narnia. I've shared with you various passages, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. One of my other most favorite scenes is a moment in the story where Aslan, he's a lion, he's died, and he's risen to life again. Sound familiar? Of course, Aslan, the powerful lion, represents Christ. He's just come back to life again. He lets out a mighty roar, and the earth is trembling. And then the very next thing he does is he plays with the children, with two girls, Lucy and Susan. He plays with them. Listen to how this is described. Oh, children, said the lion. I feel my strength coming back to me. Oh, children, catch me if you can. He stood for a second, his eyes very bright, his limbs quivering, lashing himself with his tail. Then he made a leap high over their heads and he landed on the other side. Laughing, though she didn't even know why, Lucy scrambled to reach him. And Aslan leaped again. And a mad chase began. Round and round the hilltop he led them, now hopelessly out of their reach, now letting them almost catch his tail, now diving between them, now tossing them in the air with his huge and beautifully velveted paws and catching them again, and now stopping unexpectedly so that all three of them rolled over together in a happy, laughing heap of fur and arms and legs. It was such a romp as no one has ever had except in Narnia. And whether it was more like playing with a thunderstorm or playing with a kitten, 
Lucy could never make up her mind. And that's Jesus Christ. He is gentle and humble and kind. And he is more powerful and more glorious than we could ever possibly imagine. And when John falls down to his feet as dead, Jesus doesn't let him lie there. No, he reaches out with his right hand and he picks him up and he says, don't be afraid. The number one problem in the world today and the church today is that we want to reduce who Jesus Christ is. You know, there was a movement many years ago now, it was a movement of scholars and PhDs Folks, and they were searching for the historical Christ. We've got to figure out who Jesus really is, the historical Jesus. And so they would meet together and they would pick and choose and they would say, well, I like this verse from this gospel. That's who Jesus was. But this other verse from this other gospel, I don't believe that's who Jesus really was. And they were picking and choosing the gospels. And of that endeavor, it was said very keenly that their search for Jesus in this manner was like looking for Jesus down a well, but all they were really seeing was their own reflection in the water below. God made us in his image. But I think so often we're tempted to try to make him in our image. But let us, the word of God, stand where it is. And first of all, we see that the mere presence of Christ is at times unbearable. But secondly, that his plan, it's unstoppable. Listen to what it says in verse 23. It says, Immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? The simple answer is yes. Have you come to destroy us? Yes. That's exactly what I've come to do. You know, John, the Apostle John, again, he says in one of his letters, 1 John chapter 3, he says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Genesis chapter 3, that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And then I love what happens next. Yes, I've come to destroy you. Scared? It says here that Jesus rebuked this unclean spirit, saying, be silent. The Greek there literally is, be muzzled. In other words, Christ is turning to this demon, this hound of hell, and he says, shut your mouth and then it says that the unclean spirit convulsing this poor man crying out with a loud cry came out of him and here we see again already the unstoppable plan of Jesus Christ to rid the world of sin 
and evil and darkness and death. And how is this unstoppable plan accomplished? Well, this construction here where it says the unclean spirit came out with a loud cry, loud cry, it's an unusual construction. Mark uses it only one other time, loud cry, at the very end of his gospel in chapter 15 where we see this same Jesus with all of his divine authority and power and now he's nailed to a cross and he's bleeding and he's dying and it says verse 37 that Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last the one who has that exousia, that authority, the author of life, has given his life so that you might live. Live with him forevermore. Free from sin, free from evil. And of course, it's not just the cross, it is the empty tomb that this unstoppable plan had already begun. It was already won. This is D-Day. You know D-Day, World War II. D-Day, the Allied forces, the British and the American soldiers in the coastline of France and all those overwhelming power of the Nazi army. And when that day happened, when those days happened, when that battle was done, when they had overtaken those fortifications of the Nazis, the war was over. Victory was absolutely guaranteed. The war was over in that moment. There were still 10 months of fighting and many terrible battles, but the war was over. As we conclude here, that's your life, Christian. The war has been won. And victory is assured. And you are more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ and in his strength and in his cross and empty tomb. Oh, but there's lots of battles. And maybe there's times when you lose those battles. You lose a battle against temptation. The war is still won and victory is yours. Or you lose a battle against your fears and a battle against depression, but the war is still won and victory is still yours. And there's someone here in the room or, or online with this amount of people, there's someone who needs to hear what I'm about to say. Because there's someone who's listening to this sermon today and you've lost a loved one. You've lost a loved one who harmed themselves, who hurt themselves, and they're gone. You know what that means? That means that the enemy got a temporary, momentary upper hand, but the war has been won. Victory is ours, victory is yours, victory is theirs in the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. His plan is unstoppable. In fact, as we close here, Paul himself says in Colossians chapter one, he says, he, that is Christ, 
has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's the present tense. It's already happened. You have been delivered from the domain of darkness and you have already been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. Colossians chapter 1. In fact, we're going to use that as our confession of our faith and what we believe about Jesus Christ this morning. So let's stand together. And using the words of Paul in Colossians chapter 1, let's confess our faith in who we believe Jesus Christ to be.